A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It can be hard to express to the youth what it was like before. Before the internet, media was this entirely different thing. It was everything. Take ads. Ads were not ignorable. They were not analyzing me and guessing at what I might want. Ads told me what I should want. Ads made me want whatever they wanted me to want. And there was no ignoring them. I I had never even seen a remote control. So this was straight-up injection of consumer lust delivered directly from multinational brands into my juvenile brain and repeated over and over again on the daily. Media owned my brain. I would watch whatever they told me to watch. I would watch whatever was on. And media was monolithic. Two or three companies with total authority to set the culture for everybody. Kids today just don't understand that. What it was like to be a teenager under those conditions, how stultifying, how oppressive that was, how hard you had to work and search to find anything remotely different. And when you did find it, and you found with it other kids who also sought that stuff out, I mean, that was like an epiphany, a revelation. And together, we would dream. What if anyone could have a channel? What if anyone could make a movie or a show? What if anyone could release their own album or magazine or video or comic book? What if the things that we search so hard to find, including each other, were as easy to connect with as network TV? That was the dream. We dreamed of the internet. And then we watched it happen. And then it turned to shit. I'm not talking about the usual internet boogeymen, Hackers, pirates, screen addiction, revenge porn, doxing, Logan Paul, all of the moral panic scaremongering that old media whipped up against the internet. Even when there was truth to those fears, they were still just a manifestation of the fact that media, for good or for ill, was now an authentic representation of the people who made and consumed it. But that just might not be true anymore. I am talking about the rise 
of the bots. I have read the studies saying that as much as 40% of all internet traffic is fake, but I didn't really know what that actually means or, or, or why I should care until I read a piece in New York Magazine by their senior editor, Max Reed, who incidentally is a former editor-in-chief of Gawker. Now, I used to think that bots were, you know, a bandwidth issue, certainly a problem for the ad business, sometimes a troll issue, you know, a pretty easy-to-detect troll issue. What I have learned from Max Reed is that the fakeness that bots represent has actually infected every aspect of the internet. And it is a fakeness that is about to take over, eclipsing the vast, messy universe of human interaction that the internet used to represent. It is a terrifying premise called the inversion, backed by copious evidence, and Max Reed is going to join me from New York to explain it all in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Pete Raskowski, Gina Rothstein, Laurie Barton, Sarah Kolbeck, Jonathan Charles, Mark Coakley, Lindsay Kirkham, and by Mendenadov. My name is Mendenadov. I'm a software developer in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I think media criticism is important, and I think you do a great job providing it. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Max, uh, the internet is fake. Just how fake is it? <laughs> That's a really good question. It depends a little bit on how you define fake, but really, I think the answer is most of it. What, what do you mean by that? Can you kind of go through how you broke this down in your recent piece? Sure. This is something that I think a lot of people might feel like they know uh, sort of intuitively. But uh, about half of traffic on the Internet right now, um, sometimes more than half of traffic on the Internet, is not human. It's bot traffic. And a lot of those bots are pretending to be human beings. They're, you know, on websites, clicking on ads or, or fake clicking on ads, scamming people, driving up views on YouTube. And it's kind of unclear how many of the humans that we know are on the Internet are themselves representing themselves authentically. You know, we are pretty familiar at this point with stories of Russian trolls borrowing photographs of Brazilian fathers to pretend to be Trump supporters on Facebook. So we have a host of bots pretending to be humans. We have a host of humans pretending to be humans. And it's become increasingly uh, unclear uh, who we can actually trust. You know... You kind of take the term fake and you apply it uh, to, all, uh, you know, dozens of different dubious things that are happening on the Internet, um, which is an interesting way of looking at things depending on how we perceive a fakeness. But there, there are two specific 
points of revelation that I think led to your piece that have to do with advertising, one of them being these unsealed documents and the other being what we've learned about the depths of the depravity of Facebook's metrics. What makes this news when we all know that bots have been on the internet for some time? Can you can you get into a little bit of detail about what we learned through those two stories? Yeah, sure. So in November, the Department of Justice charged a bunch of uh, mostly uh, Eastern Europeans, Russians, Ukrainians with essentially uh, plotting and executing on two big ad fraud schemes and the risk of getting into the sort of wonky details. But I think they're sort of interesting and important. One of them was a sort of classic ad fraud scheme where they installed malware on a bunch of unwitting users' computers and then and in so doing created a botnet, um, which is essentially just sort of a remotely controlled group of computers and sent all those computers to a bunch of websites to fake click on ads, which they then uh, told advertisers, look, we got so many clicks and they pocketed all all of the money. Um, this is like a, a classic fraud. There, the the ad board says some untold, you know, bi- literally billions of dollars are being stolen by advertising fraudsters every year. The second scheme I found sort of more, I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of poetically interesting to me. So rather than uh, install malware on computers and sort of hijack other people's desktop computers to create these fake ad clicks, they rented server space in Dallas and they basically built a whole fake internet. They built fake websites that mimicked sort of prestige publishers like The Economist or like Vogue. They uh, created fake users who had fake social media accounts who were sent to browse the real internet to collect fake cookies. They had them fake move their cursors to make it look like real humans were doing it. And then they would fake click on the very real ads and pocket all the money. You know, I don't want to like suggest that this is some unprecedented new territory here. It's just the kind of thing that when you read it, it really, for me at least, it really clicked into place. At the same time, this year, a bunch of advertisers sued Facebook for essentially misreporting a bunch of important metrics to them over the last few years. There have been a number of instances where Facebook has come out and sort of shamefacedly said, you know, oh, we inflated video views or we uh, accidentally miscounted the number of people who clicked on this link or whatever. And these advertisers are essentially claiming that Facebook has been doing this at a much bigger scale than we had previously thought and that it has cost them an enormous amount of money. So the first one is so interesting to me because, you know, just being in publishing, as soon as you get into an economy where people get paid based on how many views your video gets or how many people read your article, you know, the thought comes to your mind like, well, what if I just clicked on the article a million times and then... You know, we know that there are these click farms in China where they hire teenagers to do that, to just click on things. And then why actually pay these teenagers? Why not just write a program, a bot to do that? But then the bot detection software can tell. So, you know, as you describe, Max, then the bots just get more sophisticated. So they do things like humans do. They move curses around. They go to other sites and collect cookies. But it's still about pretending to be a consumer of content. And the fakery is on that side. What was so alarming and Black Mirror-ish about your piece is like, well, it's not just a fake content consumer pretending to be a human, but the content provider, like why actually have a premium website like The Economist when when you can actually serve video and advertising through some fake site that itself is also a bot. So you just have this conversation between bot publishers and bot readers in order to drum up clicks to defraud people of advertising dollars. That's crazy. Yeah. That's kind of mind-blowing. And then this Facebook thing it's almost like we always knew they were lying to us, but the Facebook thing is we found out they were lying to us by many more multiples than, than we thought they were lying to us. Right. And it's not just that. It's that um, their honesty is kind of um, 
trying to think of the right way to put this. Look, if you've paid attention to the news over the last two years, it's very difficult to think, oh, well, because Facebook confessed to this, they must have told us everything. Um, that, you know, we're in a position where Facebook has already demonstrated that it's not a particularly trustworthy institution. So even this sort of half-hearted attempts at coming clean about this stuff, I don't blame anybody who wants to say, oh, why should we trust you? Or why should we think that that's right? And to me, what's really interesting about all this is that one of Facebook's sort of business propositions, one of the ideas behind its dominance in advertising is that it is not a wild west, is that it is that it is very clearly uh, sort of limited. It has really sophisticated fraud detection systems. It is not like a way that you can fake a bunch of websites and fake a bunch of people. Um, you know, it sort of promises to give a clean, real name experience to advertisers. And I think that's an important part of what's made it so popular and, and sort of allowed it to come to dominate the internet, internet advertising space. And yet what's become clear is that all that sort of sense of Facebook as this trustworthy institution um, where if you buy ads on Facebook, you know you're getting your money's worth, is it's less and less clear that that's uh, something that you can take to the bank. And to put that into practical terms, if I have this right, if somebody is on their Facebook newsfeed, if a video starts autoplaying and you're not even looking at it because you're reading something else and, and a second or two of it goes by, they're telling that advertiser that you watched that video. They're counting that as a view, right? Yeah. And they're adding up a minute's worth of video in total may have played from dozens of different sources, and I might not have paid attention to any of it. Yeah. This is sort of the story of advertising in mass media forever, that this is that you just invent these kind of odd metrics that you know you can succeed at that maybe don't have any real relationship to the way people actually engage with stuff. But only on the internet has that sort of been elevated to this amazing art form, where, as you say, you scroll through your Facebook feed, and you catch a second of video here, and two seconds of video there. And the next thing you know, Facebook is saying, well, look, these people, they watch minutes of video every day. It's like, well, no, I, I scroll past minutes of video every day because I don't actually want to watch it. All of this, of course, and this is you know pre-internet, has given birth to independent, supposedly third-party auditing firms that are, are supposed to kind of be like, no, 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 this is an industry standard uh, metric where some third party is going to come in and actually verify these stats. But you report that some of those, some of those services are themselves fake. Yeah, I mean, there, there's all kinds of, uh, like, and this even goes back to what I was just saying about Facebook. Facebook presents itself as a kind of all-in-one, you know, guaranteed to be authentic, 100% safe place to spend your money. But Facebook is completely closed off to even to even a shady third-party auditor, let alone a legitimate one. I mean, there's, there's very little reason to trust half of the people who are telling you that they are doing the right thing online. And part of that is that we don't have a good way of sort of taking a bird's eye view picture of the internet, of, of looking and seeing what's real and what's fake, where things are going and where they're coming from. And it makes it impossible to, to say, well, these guys, they have it right. And then you kind of get a little bit philosophical about this concept of fake and you extend it to just looking at kind of like Instagram celebrities and some of them are pretending to have sponsored content. Well, they'll, they'll actually do a post that looks like a classic Instagram influencer who has a sponsored content deal. And they're doing that to appear as if they're big enough to have a sponsored content deal in the hopes that they get a sponsored content deal. And then you also bring up some of these like CGI and Instagram influencers who it, it, it is revealed that there's not actually a human being here living this idealized lifestyle with this perfect face. You kind of describe this this hellscape. What do you say? Like we're, we're heading towards the inversion. What is the inversion? 
So the inversion to um, I'm I'm borrowing from this sort of moment uh, in YouTube history in 2013 when the site was under attack from a botnet that was essentially sending fake traffic masquerading as human traffic, and it was such a huge percentage of YouTube's traffic it was nearly half. And the engineers were worried that once more than half of the traffic on the website was bots masquerading as humans, that the automatic fraud detection systems that YouTube has in place would start labeling the bot traffic human and the human traffic bot. And I thought, like, God, doesn't that sound like exactly what is happening online right now? That we've sort of reached this point where so much of this stuff is fake. And I'm not just talking about bots versus humans. I'm talking about this whole sort of the whole culture of influencing, of kind of the way we think about and talk about stuff on social media, the businesses that we encounter, that it's become impossible to tell the real stuff from the fake stuff. Um, and then in fact, some of the stuff sort of is real and fake at once or, or looks real and is actually fake or looks fake and is actually real. It, you sort of become unmoored from any sense of like what, what is worth trusting and what is authentic and what you can um, have a connection to. I, I kind of like read that and, and first had this like chill up my spine that like, oh my God, this is a, a sci-fi black mirror uh, dystopia. And then I thought, wait a minute, what is he even talking about? Like, it's interesting that, that you know, 60% or whatever it is of the traffic on the internet is uh, are bots. And it's, it's interesting that bot advertisers are selling ads to bot ad consumers. But what do I care? Like, I, I know that I'm a human being. And I know that when I'm reading, like, a Max Reed article on the internet that that was written by a human being. There's no artificial intelligence. Like, maybe AI can pump out some weird mirror-flipped Dora video where Dora encounters Spider-Man. And my four-year-old might watch that for a few minutes. But it's not sophisticated enough that I'm... My bingeable Netflix shows are made by humans, damn it. Like, what do I care if so much of the internet is fake? Unless I'm an advertiser getting defrauded. Well, I mean, I have a bunch of different answers to this, and it kind of depends on how high we are and, like, how deep we want to get into the mysteries of human existence. But let's start on, like, we sort, can just get sort of... Deep. We can get deep, Max. <laughs> let's start on the top level. Let's start just on a business level. Um, the fact that there's this enormous amount of money being defrauded from advertisers means that there's an enormous amount of money that's not going to an already um, deeply wounded um, media industry, at least in the U.S., that, you know, we're looking at a whole kind of um, business model for publishing, which is, you know, to my mind, like an incredibly important component of any democratic society that is like deeply corrupt. And so so you end up in this position where it's not just that, you know, there's this sort of money being taken out of the pockets of publishers who desperately need it. It's also that the whole system of metrics is reinforced by this fakeness. You know, you keep misreporting, exaggerating your numbers, faking your numbers. It just sets higher bars for people to meet, which has become impossible for them to meet even further. You end up undermining or corroding or just sort of generally abusing the sort of this, this whole system of reporting and of journalism of, of civic media that's that's kind of m more necessary than ever I would say so let me let me see how uh, if I understand that like like we're in the truth business ostensibly and if the economic model for journalism for this business of telling people what's going on is based on a a complicated intestine like matrix of, of fraud and lies <laughs> uh then that's going to catch up with you. And like, yes, siphoning off money to all these intermediaries uh, is and keeping it out of the hands of journalists and journalistic organizations, that's a problem. But I guess it's also a problem that, that we increasingly act like like robots because we're trying to outsmart the, the, the algorithms and come up with search engine friendly headlines and we're gearing our news more and more towards getting those clicks. Is that the argument you're making that, that essentially 
tr trying to actually connect with an audience and, and provide you know useful information if it's mediated through this mechanism of trying to get as many clicks as possible because that's where the money's coming from you lose sight of whether you're serving humans or serving robots. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, and you can divide it up, you know, I think there's there's sort of a strong version and a weak version of the argument, and I just mean in terms of, like, how intensely you want to make it. And it, just the weak version is this sort of classic engineering law that if you set a target, it is going to be gamed. That if you, if you say the goal of what we're doing is to put as many computers on this thing as possible, people are going to stop caring about whether it's human computers or bot computers. Um, and that's a problem. And then beyond that, I think you're absolutely right that that starts to affect I mean, this is obviously, if you go online and read it, affects the actual editorial content of what we read and how we read it. That you, as you as you put it so perfectly, you stop caring about whether you're reaching readers or you're reaching bots because the point is only just to hit a certain kind of number. And in fact, you don't want to think about the fakeness of it at all. You want to look away from the fakeness because then you get that sense of vertigo that you've built this whole kind of industry, this whole career, this whole sensibility on the back of something that has never really been real. How different is this, though, from how things were beforehand? I mean, like, it all sounds very technologically based and futuristic, but you brought up earlier that media stats have been juked since there were media stats. Newspaper circulation auditing, TV Nielsen ratings. We, we be, we've been trying to pump these up and sensationalize things in order to get that quick hit where, where you're kind of sacrificing credibility or deep engagement in order to kind of, you know, sweeps week. I mean, that was like, it became formalized that you would kind of artificially try to get views because advertising rates were based on this one week. You would try to get much higher ratings that week. I have some vague memory from my undergrad of, of Baudrillard's theory of uh, the simulacrum that, you know, media creates this whole fake, like, reality for people to live in. I mean, in a sense, that was probably easier when there were just two or three networks that could basically convey to the entire population what reality was. So is, is this a new phenomenon that you're describing? Uh, you know, the internet, it's not necessarily new. Like, there are a huge number of the problems with the way media works right now have been in motion since cable television uh, in the 80s, have been in motion since the rise of television in the 40s, have frankly just sort of been in place structurally since mass media was invented. For me, the sort of the easiest way to put it is that the internet has heightened and accelerated all of those processes. So if mass media is useful in creating, as you say, a kind of fake reality, a simulacrum that everybody wants to live inside, the internet, you know, puts that on a kind of exponential path. Like it, it scales it beyond anything that was previously imaginable. And the other part of it is that it drags all of the old media along with it. It subsumes all of these other industries like television, like uh, the print industry, and it turns them into sort of arms of its own ever-advancing quest to to scale, to grow, to to find and leech value from things. So is it new? I don't know. I think that um, it is worse than it's ever been before. I mean, to me, the idea of the inversion is the idea that we're no longer in a place where this is a phenomenon that we can sort of observe from a distance and think about and understand and still manage to have a relationship to media that isn't completely wrapped up in questions of fakeness. Um, we're just so deep inside it that this is the, the, the way everything works now. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of imagine when there was this huge authority, you could have all the networks blaring, you know, I don't know, like Colin Powell selling WMDs to the UN. 
uh, and, and you're just getting this messaging with such authority hammered into you again and again. And you could say, OK, in the age of mass media and, and centralized control, there was sort of this simulated reality that they could create. But then kind of truth has this way of reasserting itself. And, and you know, we, over time and when things get politically de-escalated, it becomes possible to reassert truth. And then journalism can be applied to this and we can, we can, there's a bottom line you could reach. So maybe the inversion is where the ability to even d- distinguish objective truth or, or to apply that kind of analysis disappears. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing to consider is that like what we face right now is the kind of endless corrosion of any sense of trust or of solidarity or of or of even the idea that there is like a way forward in anything. You know, one of the things I write about in this piece is this technology called deep fakes, which I think people have probably read about. But um, for those of you who haven't, it's a uh, video editing tech where you if you have enough photographs of somebody's face, you can take any video of anybody and basically paste the face using machine learning on top of it. So it's mostly been used by people on Reddit to create pornography of famous actresses. But you could think of a million political uses, like uh, let's say in a very mild way that I have a video of somebody kicking a puppy and I have a bunch of photos of Donald Trump. I can paste Donald Trump's face over it and create a very realistic video of Donald Trump kicking the puppy. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this up is not to suggest that there is some way where we're all going to be fooled by some video in the future, but that in fact, what's happened, you know, sort of in this moment, in this post-inversion moment, if we can just keep using this fake word I coined, that we can't really trust anything. That it's it, instead of it being like, oh, I, I saw that video of Donald Trump kicking the puppy. I've been fooled into thinking he kicked the puppy. It's well, I saw a very real video of sex workers peeing on a bed in in in, a, in Russia somewhere. But it's just deep fakes. It's got to just be deep fakes. Everything becomes subject to uh, accusations that it's fake. Everything becomes everything breaks down in that way. And I think that's maybe the sort of the most fundamental difference between now and 1991, between now and Baudrillard's idea that the Gulf War didn't happen, that we kind of all, it's not, it's not merely that we sort of live in this extra reality created by mass media and the elites who control it. It's that we all, all now uh, live in our own reality that we get to make however we want and we have the tools to disclaim and um, dispute and suggest that other people's realities are not real. Yeah, it sounds so dangerous, and yet, like, I, 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 I welcome it. Look, we could go back further, right? Like, th- there used to be guys who drew pictures in newspapers before photographs, and people thought, well, they wouldn't have put this in the newspaper if it wasn't real. And so drawings had, in the aesthetics of journalism, in the aesthetics of how people took an information, if it was a drawing in the newspaper that was drawn in a certain style, if it was not on the, the funnies page, that was an illustration of a news event. And then when photographs came along, that that took on the, like, this doesn't lie. Then the photograph was revealed to be a liar by Photoshop, and now video is being revealed to be a liar. Video was always a lie because depending on the angle and how you presented it and which parts of it you showed, it was always the potential for manipulation. There was no such thing ever as a document that was just sort of irrefutable by virtue of the medium or something like that. I mean, I, I, And they're doing this now with audio too. I saw that if you have enough of a database of audio of somebody, you can just type in and then they'll say it. The, the, this, the Adobe was showing this off. I'm of several minds about this. I, In some ways I agree with you that I kind of prefer the full-on cynicism of, understand, of, of like truly understanding how all this stuff works. And I think that in some ways it's preferable to a system where we all pretend that what we're hearing is the truth, um, even when it kind of very clearly uh, isn't. 
the things that I worry about, the anxieties that I have, are that this kind of system where, and I think this is where, where media is headed right now, that we're headed back to a very kind of 19th century sense where um, basically every publication is highly partisan to a class or a political point of view, where the point of journalism is less to, you know, sort of rationally assess facts, um, and let's just bracket that and pretend for a second that that was the point of mid-century journalism, even though I think there's a lot of reasons to dispute that characterization, um, where the point is less to rationally present facts and more to advance a particular set of political arguments. And I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world, strictly speaking. I think that we're entering into a new kind of political alignment that is going to require a level of mobilization and of political engagement that can't be brought about by really anodyne and milquetoast, you know, big city papers kind of describing things that are happening in the White House. The thing that I worry about is that this isn't exactly happening in a vacuum, that we're not talking about the breakdown of old gatekeepers for this big free new landscape. We're talking about the creation of a host of new gatekeepers who are much less transparent, sort of much shadier, and frankly, much more powerful than any of the old gatekeepers were. I, I think it's obvious that I'm talking about Facebook, I'm talking about Google, and in particular YouTube. I'm even talking a little bit about Twitter. I don't know that we're actually entering a different universe so much as we are rebuilding an old one with uh, even fewer, even more powerful, and even worse gatekeepers. No, I I, I understand what you're saying, and, and, and it seems like we're kind of in this stage now of like, f they were so far ahead of us, and we were sort of in awe of those companies as they as they took on this gargantuan status, and now we're just waking up to say, we need regulation, we, we, need, we need standards, uh, we can no longer just believe that they're just these amazing wonderkin geniuses, we need to, they need to open up their books as to what they're doing, and we can set in professional standards or, or government regulations, and, you know, maybe we can kind of rein this in and make it consistent with our values. And then simultaneously, I hear you, like, explaining, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're reverting to this pamphleteer phase of media, and we've been talking about that on the show quite a bit, but a lot of things happen at once, you know, and I don't know, McLuhan had this whole concept of, of, of the tetrad, and there was this flip back, where anytime something new happens, something old is pulled back from obsolescence. And I know that this isn't the major thrust of what's happening in news journalism right now, but it is heartening that something that arguably really good is happening, which is like this whole advertising thing is such a swamp, but we're establishing like the most trustworthy news sites are the ones that people pay for with their money. You know, yeah. like it seems like like, you know, yeah, you pay for CNN and your cable bill, but kind of everybody gets CNN and they still have to serve their advertisers and get as many eyeballs as possible. They're not so credible. But the New York Times is a premium product that you have to have to shell out for, you know, beyond a certain bit, bit of free content. And they kind of gain the, the credibility boost of having that like you pay us. We make content for you. If we lose your credibility, we lose your money. We don't care necessarily how many people read this. And, and, and that, that direct relationship, I mean, maybe that's still very partisan. It's arguable, but but real. there's a rebirth of, of real enterprise journalism and, and, and resourcing that journalism that is happening amidst everything else that's going on. Yeah, and that's fantastic. I mean, I don't even want to dispute that that's the case and that, um, you know, the sort of one of the um, knock-on effects, the good knock-on effects of the kind of decline in trust is – well, let me put it this way. It makes trust a commodity, right? So that the, what you're paying for when you pay for the New York Times is you are paying for the idea that you can trust this institution and this particular publication. That's great. That's, that's, like, that's, that's very good. But I worry that that's that's essentially sort of a minority of what's going on. That's a small portion. It's it's a set of educated and, uh, you know, urban dwelling and, and, you know, I'm avoiding using the word elite, but let's say sort of elite classes. And that, 
you know, a huge portion of the country, a huge portion of the world is still kind of getting its news from platforms that are designed to maximize uh, division, emotional reaction, anger, you know, like all the things that, that tend to lead to fascism. It's uh, it's it's so dank. Like uh, it, it's it's <laughs> yeah. It, it seems like people are kind of, you know getting the picture and like be, be, also just between like the ways it's impacting people's lives, their sex lives, and their personal you know like the, the compulsive aspects of all this media. Like we're kind of all just waking up to how gross this thing is, but at a point where nobody like it's inextricably linked to the way we live and and. It's almost like the people who are most aware of how destructive it is are yeah. the people who are most addicted to it and least likely, I'm speaking for myself here, like, you know, I'm not getting rid of Facebook. I'm not getting rid of Twitter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I think that there's a kind of um, – I mean, look, I, I, I use Facebook still. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful reporting tool, actually, if I want to reach out to people. But the other thing that is scary about this new – I use that excuse, too. I use that excuse <laughs> right? Too, <yeah. laughs> but, like, look, what I really can't quit, what I really couldn't get off of is Instagram, which is, you know, I have conversations on Instagram and I follow people. And, you know, I just to circle back to this sort of idea of these platforms, you know, it, we, can, we can hail the kind of um, disintegration of, a, like, a, like a, closely, a, a closely knit um, mass media uh, organizations in big cities and in the U.S. or whatever, but like the rise of places like Facebook, which are pretty literally inescapable, even if we all quit Facebook, it still got Instagram the most popular thing. Like that's the part that is sort of the most frightening to me that 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 there's no there's really is no way out of this. Man, it's it makes it seem quaint. Like if you would have asked people five years ago, what the worst thing was about the internet? They might have just said Gawker. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny hearing you talk about um, the sort of the 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 return of the pamphleteering style and the kind of like, isn't it good that that we're moving away from this three networks kind of model? My old boss, John Cook, who broke the uh, Rob Ford story, he has his pinned tweet right now is something to the effect of. I always thought the triumph of nihilism was going to be good and fun. Um, I think what worries me is that, you know, I worked at Gawker for a long time, <laughs> and our, our basically our operative, I don't want to say that it was that cynicism is good, but that it was good to make it clear how cynical even the people who pretended they weren't being cynical were, that it was important to be as honest as we possibly could about the motives of everything that was going on. And there's part of me that still really strongly believes that. But, uh, you know, it's impossible not to think about this with with respect to Donald Trump, um, whose appeal to most people is that he is a liar who is honest about being a liar. And it makes me wonder if, you know, that kind of accelerationist cynicism as as invigorating as it is, is ultimately another dead end. If I can get uh, a little bit sort of sappy here, for me, the really scary thing about the sort of decline of trust in these big institutions isn't, you know, that I believe those institutions were great or are great or deserve the kind of trust that people used to preserve in them, but it's that people lose the ability to trust anything. Um, and that is, for me at least, the foundation of any kind of real democratic politics is solidarity, is the idea that we can have relationships with other people, that we can trust that they are who they present themselves to be, that they can trust the problems that they present to us are real problems that we are together going to engage to fix. And if you create a system and if the the world that we live in is one in which we are taught from day one not to trust people, not to trust numbers, not to trust human beings, not to trust businesses, not to trust anything but the idea that we're supposed to be online all the time, um, you you kind of undermine any ability to have the, the, the kind of genuine democratic 
politics that I think both sort of liberals and socialists and, and anybody on the left um, should support or would want. <laughs> That's a very idealistic comment from <laughs> from a guy who uh, was just extolling the virtues of nihilism. Look, it's a very, it's a very, it's a funny joke, and it's a punk rock pose to say like, "Oh, I was hoping for nihilism," and I think a lot of people would think that Gawker was about some sort of nihilism. That's bullshit. Like, Gawker was a high minded publication that believed in truth. I'm, sorry, I'm I don't mean a lecture about Gawker, the guy who used to edit it, <laughs> but like, the ethic, the ethic was. We are going to report stuff that's going to make us look like scumbags for reporting it, but you're going to know it either way. And we don't, you can, we can be the scumbags if we need to be the scumbags, but you're going to know it either way. And that was thought of at the time as, as embodying the worst aspects of this privacy destroying internet and this click hungry internet. Uh, but it didn't embody anything but Gawker itself. And and since Gawker was destroyed, like that ethic is gone. Everybody is posturing. <laughs> the fakeness that you describe has taken over. Like like, like it is really I, Well, sure. Look, I mean, you're 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 totally right. And I don't like the John's tweet is not at all meant to be like a rejection of his time at Gawker. You're absolutely right. Gawker was not really a cynical publication. I should say that. Like Gawker was Gawker was itself probably it, to my mind, like sort of the most insufferably high-minded and self-righteous publication out there. But I think what Gawker started to do towards the end and never quite was able to put together properly and what, what the next step of the project really needed to be, and probably why Gawker was always doomed from the start, was to present an actual kind of politics beyond this idea that we can pull down people who are faking it themselves. There has to be a set of values that you yourself are putting forward. You know, I think this is why Gawker writers tended to end up as kind of socialists for the most part, because that became the kind of the undergirding, the underlying politics that made whole the sort of the other half of it, which was the the constant exposure of the foibles of the powerful. The other thing, and this is something that I think is important to think about in terms of Gawker, is you're saying that like, well, you know, Gawker was supposed to be the harbinger of the internet with all these awful privacy invading whatevers, and now nobody does that anymore. I actually don't think that's true. I think that this is a place where people are interestingly blind about it, which is that all the stuff that people really hated about Gawker, the kind of sniping criticism, the privacy invasion, the drive-bys, that's just what social media is. That's the business model of Twitter. Like, And nobody seems to notice or care because they figured out how to sort of diffuse it across billions of accounts and, you know, like liability and, um, and make it make it as kind of uh, un- unidentifiable as possible. And lacking uh, any fact-checking whatsoever, so you don't know if the <laughs> gossip, you know, even if it's the worst privacy of anything, you don't know if it's true. Exactly. And without even the, the semblance of an editorial conversation as to whether or not it's in the public interest. Well, the good news is I'm working on an AI gawker bot. I fed all the articles <laughs> into a big... De- now, Max Reed, this is a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you for letting me ramble about my old jobs and everything I hate about the world. That was your Canada Land for this week. I hope you liked it. You can email me about it, and I will read what you send me if you send it to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. There is a new episode of Oppo. Check it out this week. We have an election coming. You will want to be listening to Oppo. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to get these podcasts, all of the podcasts that we make with no ads on them, you can get that by supporting us at patreon.com slash Please do. Canada Land.